0: Supporting middle leaders in schools,
1: guiding the senior leadership of tomorrow,
0: and developing your successful career in education.
1: This is Edgecast from NAHT
0: Edge. This is the February edition of the podcast from NAHT Edge. Welcome to episode 8. Let's get an immediate sense of what we'll be covering and why it's of use to you.
2: Education currently is creating an environment where children can become mentally unwell.
3: They will be able to have that release of the endorphins in the short term to then allow them to believe that sport isn't just about Filling the PE curriculum, it's about doing it for life.
4: The professor described the current provision of the subject as patchy and in need of improvement.
0: Now, you're doubtless aware that Children's Mental Health Week falls during this month, and amongst all the other pressures on time and the curriculum, schools have been finding ways in which to promote good mental health, well-being and resilience to a generation increasingly bombarded by fatuous images and vapid statements. Well, in this podcast, you'll hear a good deal about these issues in a specially themed podcast that chats to Chris Wright, Head of Health and well-being at the Youth Sport Trust, and two key staff members from one school who have implemented the work of the Trust and reaped its rewards. From Southfield School in Northamptonshire, Janet Goodliffe and Dr Eleanor Hartley give their side of the story and how the girls there have reacted to the scheme. Add to that, the news bulletin which covers a number of stories from pay issues to A-level politics and details of the NAHT courses which will best suit you and your school. Expert advice and the sharing of ideas. Edcast. So, time to get into the first part of our two-part interview with Chris Wright of the Youth Sport Trust. To begin with, let's get a sense from Chris of what the Trust does.
2: Our mission's quite simple, that we want to build a brighter future for young people through creating active children for life, those that are creative, aspirational, resilient and empathetic. And we do that through a number of ways, mainly through programmes uh, funded either through the public or corporate sector, training and resources for schools, but also working collaboratively with a range of education, sport and health partners.
0: So where does this notion come from, Chris, that there is this link between physical activity and, and robust mental health and wellbeing?
2: There's now quite a large bank of evidence that supports this view, and particularly that relationship between increased daily activity, increased physical and emotional well-being, um, and the achievement and attainment of young people. Um, we've been working quite a lot now with organisations such as the Education Endowment Fund, um, and also Public Health England to recognise that if you can get children more active, then we're likely to have uh, an increased impact on their emotional states, but also their chances of being uh, a successful learner.
0: So what about the results then? What have you seen that have, have cemented this view?
2: Um, We've seen some marked results across a range of programs where young people are articulating back to us the impact on their wellbeing, but also their achievement. And it it tends to be in quite specific areas. One is really around girls' activity. There are specific issues with girls' participation in physical activity, but also the relationship between their body confidence and their emotional wellbeing, and sometimes their adherence to. PE and school life in general. So we've seen a marked impact on girls, particularly on those children with uh, special educational needs and disabilities, but also very specifically those pupil premium groups that schools face the challenge of um, trying to narrow the achievement gap. The,
0: the risk of asking an obvious question, why is it that resilience and mental uh, well-being are so high on the educational agenda?
2: It's an interesting question. I'll try to be apolitical on this. The schools are under increasing pressures performance management pressures and also around the rigors of the current education system on on having children attain and i think as you see with the performance sport environment that brings with it an added pressure expectation and a stress that comes with children not achieving their potential in in school life um, in terms of their exam results so education uh, currently is creating an environment where children can become mentally unwell, emotionally unwell, and where resilience and character are seen as the answer to addressing some of those issues.
0: Are schools and and teachers, therefore, doing enough to foster the notion of, of mental resilience and well-being as well?
2: I think they are, more broadly. I think there are still huge areas for improvement, but in relation to the way in which they're currently resourced, the expertise that those schools have, particularly frontline services, but also the challenges in the system around them that deals with children and adolescent mental health. It is an increasing challenge and one that we fully recognise, and I think that school leaders fully recognise. Hopefully approaches such as the Future in Mind strategy that was launched recently uh, will address some of those frontline issues with regards to mental health. But I think what we're trying to do at the Trust is to support schools with a longer-term view about preventing those issues from happening and how you can use PE and sport, physical activity, to, um, to address them over the long term.
0: Would you say there are specific groups of young people who are more responsive to physical activity producing these desired results then, Chris?
2: I don't think you can necessarily say there's a one-size-fits-all at the moment because I think schools are facing challenges with all cohorts of young people particularly in relation to their stress and anxiety of tests and exams and the associated mental health implications, and also increasingly access to technology is becoming quite inhibitive in terms of having pupils that are socially isolated and what we call digitally distracted. I think if you look at the evidence It will suggest that focusing on those pupils that are coming from poorer backgrounds, where we are trying to narrow the achievement gap with them, but also those students that suffer from health inequalities, there's a clear correlation between impacting on their well-being, impacting on their educational performance, and also increasingly um, impacting on their life chances.
0: There's more from Chris at the Youth Sport Trust as we further explore how sport and robust mental health and wellbeing go hand-in-hand hand within the next five or so minutes. Some great news to come before the end of the episode when it comes to our new HEADS conference. Keep with us for what that entails and how to book. If you do attend, there'll even be a section on Lessons Learned from Shakespeare's Henry V as Edgecast stiffens up the sinews and summons up the blood to go once more unto the breach. Remember, you can get every episode of this podcast by clicking subscribe on iTunes, and it's also available on SoundCloud. Now, your articles on anything topical that affects the profession are very welcome in either written or audio blog form to this email, blog at nahtedge.org.uk. That's blog at nahtedge.org.uk. You can even submit video. More pressingly, all the salient news stories for teachers and middle leaders. It's news time.
1: The news and information from
4: NAHT Edge. In this bulletin, what England's chief medical officer has to say about PSHE, pay clarity for assistant head teachers, union solidarity against the education secretary's suggestion to allow teachers to move from the upper to the main pay range, What's the future for GCSE and A-level ICT and feminism and the A-level politics syllabus? P.S.H.E. should be a routine and, if necessary, statutory part of all children's education. That's the view of Professor Dame Sally Davies, England's Chief Medical Officer. The professor described the current provision of the subject as patchy and in need of improvement. After a brace of critical reports, firstly in 2013 and then again in 2015, Davies added the subject should empower children with the information they need to plan healthier lives. Joe Heyman, chief executive of the PSHE Association, said, We believe statutory status is essential, and called on government to act on the recommendations of health experts. NAHT Edge has pledged its support for statutory PSHE. You can read Joe's blog outlining the case for statutory PSHE by going to nahtedge.org.uk forward slash news and views and clicking on the highlighted text at the bottom of the article. And next, NAHT Edge has proved successful in persuading the DFE to publish extra guidance that clarifies when a school can review its senior leadership team members' pay following significant changes to their responsibilities. In practice, assistant head teachers have often been reluctant to put the case forward that their responsibilities have changed and their pay scale should be reviewed because the wording of the STPCD seemed to be intent on restricting opportunities, particularly in smaller schools. Both NAHT and NAHT Edge have subsequently been lobbying the DfE to give supplementary guidance, so schools find it easier to make the case to their employers for a review. The association put forward some ideas to the DfE as to how this could look, and was pleased to learn at the end of autumn term that the department has now published this advice in its pay guidance, implementing your school's approach to pay. More on pay now. A number of teaching unions have come together to persuade the school teachers' pay review body not to proceed with a proposal that would allow teachers to step down from the upper to the main pay range. Last year, we reported that a letter from Education Secretary Nikki Morgan to the STRB implored the body to consider granting additional flexibilities to support schools and address the recruitment and retention pressures they face. One suggestion was for teachers to be allowed to move down from the upper pay range to the main pay range. NAHT warned that giving teachers the option to move down posed a real risk and was more complicated than it would first appear. NAHT, ASCL, ATL, NUT, UCAC and VOICE have since issued a joint statement which confirms none of our unions endorse this proposal and sets out a number of shared views on pay, including... Any pay increase must be fully funded by government and a pay increase is needed for teachers at any stage of their careers. The association expects the body's recommendations will be released by late April. A petition calling for education ministers to reserve their decision to scrap GCSE and A-level ICT has been ignored. Buried in a consultation document published last year, the DfE revealed it wouldn't be redeveloping the subject. In response to this decision, a petition was launched calling for the government to rethink its judgement. It recently passed the 10,000 signatures mark, which meant the department had to respond. In a statement, the DfE said, This decision builds on our changes to the national curriculum, where we have placed the outdated ICT programme of study with a new computing programme of study. The new computing curriculum has been designed to facilitate innovation and creativity from both teachers and pupils and emphasise the importance of learning about the fundamentals of computer science. There's still time to add your name to the petition, and if it reaches 100,000 signatures, it'll be considered for debate in Parliament. Add your signature at petition.parliament.uk forward slash petitions forward slash 111693. It closes on the 9th of May 2016. Finally, and staying with A-levels, news that the politics syllabus will be changed as a result of public concern that references to feminism had been expunged from the draft subject content. During a House of Commons debate, Schools Minister Nick Gibb said, It was never our intention to exclude the study of feminism from the reformed A-level. We've seen the strength of feeling about this issue among those who've responded to the consultation, which took place last November. Talking on the Daily Politics show, Labour MP Rupert Huck said... I don't know if it's a full U-turn, and if so, I'm glad it's happened. Commenting on the reinstatement of feminism to the politics syllabus, Times columnist Melanie Phillips added it was a category error, to put it, with the big political movements such as socialism, conservatism or liberalism. With all the Edgecast news, I'm John Peters. Connect with our tweets at n-a-h-t-edge. This
0: is Edgecast. And this month, February, sees Children's Mental Health Week. Chris Wright from the Youth Sport Trust has already given us some insight into the work of the Trust and where the link lies between sport and mental health and well-being. Before we hear from one school who used the scheme, let's get back to Chris and with news that a third of 11- to 16-year-olds now experience poor body confidence, does he think there's a danger that competitive sport will only exacerbate this?
2: To start with, body confidence is quite... Uh... It's a quite a specific and complex issue, um, and i don't think you can correlate body confidence and competition mm. necessarily as a as a unified agenda i think it's it's quite easy to be critical of competitive environments in schools and you know obviously this government is particularly focused on the role of um, competition in sport in schools at the moment, and we we manage the school games program. I think it's more to do with how you make competition relevant and thinking through how it's presented and delivered, and not doing that, in a, I suppose, in a traditional way. You know, our traditional view of competition might exacerbate the issue of things like body confidence, but some of the work we've been doing at the moment is looking at how you naturally engage children in the offer of competition and what it means to them personally, uh, and using that competitive environment within a whole mixture of things that children can access. So that it's complementary as opposed to being Excuse a pun. in competition with them, with itself.
0: Chris, I'm, I'm going to set this next question um, which has been a bit of a thorny one into context because I won't claim that either of us are particularly conversant with Danish proverbs but um, I, <laughs> I found this proverb that effectively says that translators, fresh air impoverishes the doctor. So that, that sense of just being outside and doing something physical
2: is that what it, mm. is that
0: what it boils down to with Youth Sports Trust?
2: I think what we're trying to do is to look at all of the different parts of the school day, particularly, and the different environments in which children could be active. Schools are actually a wonderful resource for engaging and keeping children in activity. And we're looking very much at all parts of the the school environment and the school day. If you take a typical journey of a child these days through a school day, they and they get out of bed and they go and sit down for breakfast and then they get in the car and they drive to school and they sit down for the lesson and they sit down for lunch and they sit down for another lesson and then they get driven home again. I think things like outdoor spaces and playgrounds and facilities are important, but it's also about how you integrate activity into all elements of school life.
0: The future then, Chris, um, in terms of the, the trust stated aims, where do the challenges lie
2: then? Probably over the last twelve to eighteen months we've been very focused on the message we've been getting back from head teachers which is consistently presenting the challenge that declining physical and emotional well-being of, of children is probably the greatest barrier to achievement at the moment and how we can um, unlock children's potential using pe sport to do that we've got to change a lot of hearts and minds not only um, our school leaders and our institutions that educate young people, but also policy makers and stakeholders about the value of active and healthy students and ensure that you can use that active and healthy student value um, to create better learners over the long term.
0: The final thing I want to come to, Chris, and you have uh, briefly alluded to the Olympics. If we look back to four years ago, to 2012, there was a lot of talk about creating this post-Olympics legacy. To what extent is this something that shaped what you do at the Trust?
2: I'm going to say probably bluntly not too much. Mm. Um, Our mission hasn't really changed or hasn't changed pre or post London 2012. We were born from the premise that you can use PE sport and physical activity to change young people's lives. And one of the missions of the legacy for London 2012 was about ensuring Future generations of children are inspired and engaged in being active for life. And we haven't deterred from that mission. So despite changes in strategy, policy um, or funding, that will continue to be our, our mission for, us, for as long as we exist, which I hope is a long time, by the way.
0: Chris Wright there, Head of Health and well-being for the Youth Sport Trust. We're also very pleased that the Trust is NAHT's charity partner for 2015-16. Youthsporttrust.org.uk is where you'll find their website and their tweets are a great resource. Their Twitter handle is at Youthsporttrust, as one word. In just a moment, what it's actually like to use the Trust's methodology in school. Southfield School in Kettering is where we go next.
1: Middle leaders have a key role to play in helping schools to succeed. They are where the vision meets reality, so your professional and leadership development matters. We know some middle leaders will aspire to headship and that's why we are pleased to announce NAHT's new Heads Conference 2016 has been opened up to assistant heads and other middle leaders who are interested in taking on the role. The conference on the 18th of March in London and again on the 20th of May in Manchester has been designed to ensure you know what's expected of you. You'll walk away equipped with the skills and confidence to develop and deliver your own vision. It's also an ideal opportunity to meet new heads and share your concerns and aspirations about stepping up to this new role. With inspirational speakers such as Andy Cope on The Art of Brilliance and Philida Hancock on The Lessons Learned from Shakespeare's Henry V and workshops on Demystifying Ofsted, The Safeguarding of Emotional Health and well-being, and Approaching Challenging Conversations, it'll be a day to remember. Our members can attend this conference for a special discounted rate. Don't wait, get ahead of the game and book your place today. Simply visit naht.org.uk or contact the events team at events at naht.org.uk. If you're not able to attend, tell your colleagues about the conference. Non-members are also welcome at this high-quality professional development event. Finally, each month we bring you a top tip to help you develop your practice. This month, NAHT National Executive Ian Backhouse advises middle leaders who are thinking about stepping up to headship to start with something small and achievable to gain whole school experience and work with those who you know will support you to deliver the project. Once you have this success, you can build on that and it'll help to develop your confidence.
0: Well, you've heard the principles behind the idea that sport in schools can bolster mental health and well-being and promote resilience. Edgecast paid a visit to Southfield School in Northamptonshire to find out how this concept had worked for them. I was joined by assistant headteacher Janet Goodliffe and Dr Eleanor Hartley, the health and well-being champion. And the first thing we discussed was whether the school had previously considered the link between sport and the issue of mental health.
5: Not really. Not in those early days, definitely not. And it's really only in the last, I would say, I would say year or two that... The mental health side has started to become very much into, I suppose, national press, um, national conversations. Certainly in Northamptonshire, it was very much highlighted through uh, the NHS in Northamptonshire. So that's where we started to work much more closely with the YST to look at developing programs that we could address the issues with mental health with young people through the medium of the sport. What
0: kind of things have you seen change or brought to light as a result of of this association with the Sport Trust?
3: I've obviously just become the Health and Wellbeing Champion in September, so it is very early stages. Already we can see there are changes with certain students throughout the different years. Starting with Year 7, they've obviously just come in from primary school, very supposedly comfortable environment compared to the big secondary school. So many more students can feel a bit lost. There are already some that are flagged up as having the remnants of some mental health conditions there, and we've been able to sort of identify them quite early through the survey that we initiated right back in September. Then throughout the school year 8, year 9, year 10, 11, 12, they've also been analysed in terms of this survey, and these have all been put into some form of strategy. So we identified uh, six peer leaders uh, right at the beginning of the year. Uh, These peer leaders, we thought, were girls that had confidence and had an interest in sport, but weren't necessarily the conventional sports leaders that we had seen already through the Kettering School Sports Partnership. These girls were trained up by the Youth Sport Trust to engage those that aren't usually involved in any physical activity. And since then they've gone on to perform their own sports leaders sessions in form times and um, they're doing non-traditional sports such as bench ball and volleyball. These girls are Year 8s and Year 10s and the Year 10s have been particularly good at speaking about how much it's helped them. The two that come to mind are in some ways not academically minded. They have quite difficult home lives but they've done really well with the sports leaders and they've been completely engaged. They're now going on to perform the girls' active team, which is all about being role models for sport and advertising sport within the school. They're constantly coming up to me asking when the next session is that they
5: can run. I'm really pleased with how that's going. <laughs> You're very much linked into as well the This Girl Cam came through from Sport England and it really sat very well with our school because you have students girls who are team players they want to be in teams and basketball etc etc but then you have the girls who perhaps are not as confident feel like a bit intimidated um so they are the girls that perhaps enjoy more on the yoga side the dance the aerobics um and zumba those sorts of those sorts of things so one of the big barriers you have with them is getting sweaty And this girl can was very much from that point of view of it actually doesn't matter what you look like and as long as you're getting active.
0: Why do you think sport in particular carries this kind of capacity, this sort of collegiate power then? What is it about sport?
3: So obviously sport, to begin with, has the whole scientific side of things with the endorphin release. Ultimately, that gives the short-term effects of feeling better about yourself. Obviously extrapolating from that, you have the fact that if they can feel good in that short term, they're going to be more likely to do it again. And... If we can play on the fact that we can find a different sport or physical activity for each student by widening the PE curriculum and altering it slightly through the Youth Sport Trust, my personal best, they will be able to have that release of the endorphins in the short term to then allow them to believe that you know, sport isn't just about filling the PE curriculum, it's about doing
5: it for life.
0: And as a girls' school then, do, do you and the Trust approach this any differently because there are no boys here?
5: I think the advantage of, of, of the girls' school, I think what we're going to be able to do is that, I, is that in mixed schools, girls, if, especially if they have mixed PE lessons, they're even less confident to participate. Um, whereas here, um, you've got a captive audience of girls, and they don't mind in that sense. They're, they're quite happy to do that. They don't have to worry about what their hair looks like. Mm. And that's the sort of message that we're trying to get across to them.
0: It's said that a third of 11- to 16-year-olds have poor body confidence. Where do you think the blame lies for that?
3: I was fortunate myself to have grown up just on the rear end of the social media really taking over and I feel like that has a massive part to play in some of the girls' lack of confidence and self-esteem today. Obviously it doesn't start there. The social media is all repeating messages from elsewhere. I feel like the general film industry and the TV industry are very much culpable in the fact that you know, they can make up someone to look completely stunning on mm. sort of, on TV or on film and in reality that's not how they look at all and I feel exactly the same for say magazines, mm. you know, there's all the sort of alterations of figures mm. which is yeah seeping through to social media where the student then can just see it on their phone and they feel like that's how they must be in day to day life and it's just not
5: healthy and I think it's so unrealistic no, I think that's absolutely right I, th- I, I, I think that It is how the girls perceive themselves um, and they are often so wrong in in their perceptions of that and Eleanor has been doing some work with students about that. We've got a very strong PSHE programme and we um, are a talk-out-loud school and we won awards for that. The girls here are very used to discussing mental health issues.
3: I think that that is where the sort of sustainability of it lies if the students themselves can see the importance of it and can gain something out spreading the word of mental health I think that that could lead to real changes in how students perceive it themselves rather than teachers saying this is what is important about leading a healthy lifestyle and things like that it's definitely pupil-led work which will lead to sort of the changes in the long run
0: It's an Edgecast thanks to both Janet and Eleanor from Southfield School in Kettering and Chris from the Youth Sport Trust. Always good to get your feedback on the issues raised in this episode. Anything you have of interest to do with mental health and wellbeing in schools can be relayed through our LinkedIn or Facebook pages and at NEHT Edge over on Twitter. That's at NEHT Edge. It would also be good to hear your suggestions as to the kind of topics you'd like the podcast to cover in the future. All the usual and aforementioned points of contact apply. We'll be back with the next episode in March. Between now and then, have a great month.